You're listening to Art Zone, Subject ACT's weekly art program on 2XXFM 98.3 FM with Real Beast. Today I'm talking to two guests. The first up will be Irma Gold, one of the authors attending the Noted Festival in Canberra, which runs from the 16th to the 20th of March. After that, I'll be talking to Matt Chun about his exhibition at the Nishi Gallery. Hi Irma, thanks for talking with us today. No worries. So your session at the Noted Festival is titled Ask Me Anything, Truths About Publishing. What kind of questions are you expecting? I have no idea. Um, and, and I guess that's the beauty of these Ask Me Anything sessions. So uh, we're really encouraging people to come along and bring their burning questions. Um, and basically, I guess we'll see what, what the audience throws at us. But Ashley Thompson's going to start by asking me some questions and he's also worked in publishing, so I'm sure he's going to have lots of thoughtful things to talk about. And basically what we're trying to do is address some of the misconceptions about publishing and really provide a kind of honest warts and all look at the various issues that most emerging writers and also, you know, some writers who've been published who often don't know about. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we'll open it up to the audience. So there'll be time for both. So better to prepare people rather than things come as an ugly surprise to them. Absolutely. Well, I think so anyway. Um, Information is power, as they say. Yeah. So who do you think will get the most out of attending? Do you think it'll be the novice or the emerging writers? I think both. I mean, I hope that people at various different stages will actually find the session useful and that even people who do know about the industry, that it will actually help fill some gaps in knowledge. Because I'm both a writer and an editor, I see both sides of the publishing process and it means that I've got an appreciation for both sides but also an understanding of some of the challenges and difficulties. And, you know, as you said, the session's called The Truth About Publishing. That's because we really do want to offer an honest window onto the working of the inside of the publishing industry. Mm -hmm. So you write uh, short literary fiction as well as children books. Will you be talking about publishing both types of writing? Well, I can talk about uh, pretty much anything. Those are the genres in which I write, but as an editor, I've worked on really broad cross-section. So I work on literary fiction, YA, young adult fiction, uh, middle grade fiction, children's picture books. Um, I've worked on non-fiction, so memoir and biography and poetry and anthologies of all kinds. So basically, I mean, I'm happy to take questions on everything. And of course, there are plenty of issues that are relevant across publishing and there are also some that are specific to those areas but yes I'm happy to take questions on anything. Okay there are many types of publishers and publishing experiences vary what aspects were you able to identify as common across publishing houses and genres? I think that's a really tricky question in terms of the publishing experience itself because there are as many different experiences as there are books Mm. Um, but I, I mean I think the one thing that's common across different houses and different genres is that people working in publishing all love books and they have a passionate belief in the importance of books. Um, And I guess that probably sounds like an obvious thing to say, but I think these days there's so much focus on a book and an author's too, availability, that I think that sometimes can get forgotten. And, you know, if if making money was your primary goal in life, you would definitely never go into publishing because (laughs) the margins are so tight. Mm. So, you know, it might be as little as selling an extra 500 copies that's the difference between you know, the book making a loss or making a small profit. And, uh, you know, as much as publishers are making educated decisions, there's so many variables that it's really impossible to determine whether a book will even turn a profit, let alone become a bestseller. Mm. Uh, I mean, there's obviously exceptions to that. If you're going to be publishing the next Matthew Riley, you can be pretty certain it's going to turn (laughs) a profit. But, you know, a lot of it is uh, publishing is really 
educated guesswork. So publishers are in the business to make money, but really they wouldn't be doing it unless they didn't all have an absolute love and belief in books. So I guess that's the one thing you can say that unifies across across publishing. So will you address how to negotiate changes to manuscripts with publishers? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you could fill a whole course on this one particular question. And, and you know, I talk about this a lot in, in my editing degree from the perspective of editors, but obviously there's a flip side with authors too. And I guess I always advise, advise authors to be open to the editing process. So an editor wants to work with the author to make the manuscript the very best that it can be. That's their goal. And a good editor will always work with the author's voice, so they're not going to impose their own voice. I think, um, you know, in my experience, for editors, newer authors who aren't familiar with the editing process can be the most challenging to work with simply because they don't understand that every book goes through this process. You know, it's a common mm. process. And when they hand their manuscript to the publishing house, you know, they often consider it to be finished, but even extremely experienced authors need the professional eye of an editor and you know, even though I'm an editor, as a writer, I need an editor too because you're just too close to the work and you need that experienced, objective eye. But I think new authors can be overly protective of their work, which can be to its detriment. So that said, I'm not suggesting that authors should unquestioningly take on everything an editor suggests at all because the most uh, valuable and productive author-editor relationships are like long and thoughtful conversations. So there's a lot of to and fro and there's give and take on both sides and the result should hopefully be a work that's the better for it. So it's really a collaboration. I think you've written about how there's a general misconception out there that once an author's had a book published, they never have to worry about getting another publishing contract. Is that one of the myths that you'll address? Yeah, I'm really glad you raised this. I mean, I don't know if we'll address it in the session. I guess it, it depends what comes up, but it's definitely something I think people are so focused quite often in getting that first book published and they don't ne- aren't necessarily aware of that, but it's so true. And in fact, if an author's first book isn't considered by the publisher to be a success, then their chances of getting a second book published are going to be pretty slim, which is why there's so much pressure on authors these days to promote and sell their books. So, you know, authors are doing events and, and school visits and speaking at festivals and promoting their books via social media because they need to sell enough copies to guarantee their next book. And there's definitely pressure from publishers for authors to do that. So as an example, a colleague of mine had a children's middle grade book. So that's that's for readers aged 8 to 12. So a middle grade book that was accepted by a major publisher. And it was going to be the first in a series of three books. And he'd already actually written the second book when the first one went to print. And the publisher had determined that they needed to sell 5,000 copies for that book to be considered in other words, for it to make enough money to go on to produce the other two books. Because one of the things that happens with series is uh, the readership always kind of drops off a little bit with each book, so it's like step down. So they need to know that by the time they get to that third book, it's still actually going to be making them money. So his book only sold 3,500 copies, which is actually a reasonable number in Australian publishing, but what it meant was that that second book, which he'd already written, has never seen the light of day. So the harsh reality is that publishing is more of a numbers game now than it ever was and sales and marketing do have the final say on whether a book is accepted for publication. And one of the things that in recent years has been informing that is uh, the Nielsen Book Scan, which records sales of books through various bookshops and publishers then have access to that information. So I think a lot of people aren't aware that any publisher can actually see how many copies your last book sold and they can use that information 
as a decision about whether they're going to take on your next book as well. There is a problem with BookScan, though, in that it's really accurate for the big retailers, so like Big W and, um, you know, the chain booksellers and so on, but those stores only stock certain kinds of books. So they're stocking commercial fiction, for example, but they're not stocking literary fiction, which happens to be what I write. Mm -hmm. Um, And about 75% of the independent bookshops are not actually included in BookScan's figures. And the independence is where, for example, literary fiction is selling, a lot of the mid-list authors are selling, um, and they tend to be really well supported by the independents. So sales figures for certain books um, on BookScan can actually appear to be lower than they in fact are, um, but nevertheless, you know, BookScan informs marketing decisions. So, you know, for better or worse, it comes down to sales. And this is just a, a question out of curiosity, and you might not know the answer, but why don't the the big Ws and Kmart and so forth have literary fiction on their shelves? It's, it's really, again, it's just a numbers game. They know that they can ship more units, uh, more numbers of books of commercial fiction. Literary fiction has a much smaller percentage of the reading market. I mean, when you look at the sort of a pie chart of, of how how the book trade is, is divided up, there's a very small percentage. Um, in fact, in some surveys, it's as little as 3% of the books that are being published are being read as literary fiction. So commercial fiction takes up a much bigger slice of the pie and, and other things too, like cooking books and so on. So the big, the big Ws of the world are only stocking the titles where they know they can shift a lot of units. So as an author, if you get your book into Big W, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, but for for people writing literary fiction and other kinds of fiction that you know that is considered to be more niche and is not getting into those stores and then is also not being represented through the independents, it means there's a kind of a skewed picture of how much they're selling. Mm-hmm. Um, and they definitely are selling less anyway, but um, but but the picture is is still downwards even further. So at the talk will you be addressing the touchy subject of what authors can expect to earn? (laughs) Yeah it is touchy isn't it? I mean in general authors can expect to earn very little sadly. You can definitely earn a better living as an editor and and you're definitely not going to make millions as an editor either. (laughs) Um, There are are certainly uh, obvious exceptions like the J.K. Rowling's of the world um, but the majority of authors need to supplement their income with other forms of work. So for starters, authors are only earning 10% of the cover price of, of their book. And if you start doing adding up the stats on that, it's actually not a lot, a lot of money. So, well, the author I was talking about before who sold 3,500 copies, that book probably retailed for about $12 because it was a middle grade fiction, which means he's only making $1.20 off every book that's sold. So mm-hmm. we're talking about total earnings in the vicinity of something like $4,000. And, um, you know, that book might have taken a year to write. And obviously $4,000 is not an annual livable salary. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you're writing something like literary fiction, you know, most authors of literary fiction are not producing a book a year. In fact, you know, some are taking 10 years to finish a book. So you really don't want to um, work out how much you're actually earning per hour on a book like that. Mm. Um, There was a recent survey that showed that the average annual income for writers is just $12,000, and that's obviously less than what's considered to be a basic living wage. So I think as well it's getting tougher. Advances are getting smaller, and books are competing with a whole range of other entertainment options. And um, I think, you know, people outside of the industry tend to be quite shocked when they're confronted with the number of copies of books that are sold 
in Australia and the low royalties that author receives because I think there's this kind of false assumption that if you've written a book, um, you know, like a good book, then it will sell well. You know, that even even The Great Gatsby only sold three copies in the last year of Fitzgerald's life. Mm. So, <laughs> and, and actually going back to J.K. Rowling, um, I think her book, The Cuckoo's Calling, shows how tough the industry was because when that was first released, it was under a pseudonym of uh, Robert Galbraith. And uh, so it was as if she was a debut novelist. It was reviewed well and it had great endorsement quotes, but it only sold 450 copies. Mm. And when it was revealed that J.K. Rowling was the author, obviously it went gangbusters. But, you know, if she was a debut author, she may never have got a second book deal based on those figures. Mm. It's all a bit depressing, really. I mean, basically authors are not in it for the money. They're simply writing because they can't help themselves. Mm. Um, because there's a very few percent, you know, very few number of writers who actually are able to make a really good living from their writing. So we've established that people aren't going to get rich by <laughs> <laughs> writing a book. What's your advice on tackling self-doubt? Yeah, I think one of the the biggest things is to accept that at one time or another, every writer will feel self-doubt. Um, I think it just goes with the territory and. As a writer, you're essentially isolated when you're writing and you're creating new work and then you're putting it out into the world. It's quite a vulnerable thing and it it can be scary and it can be full of self-doubt. And I think the writing process can be full of self-doubt too, but it can be crippling and as a writer, you need to find a way to be able to put it aside. And one of the things that really helped me as a writer was an interview that I did with Roger McDonald quite a few years ago now um, He's one of our region's most successful writers. He's published nine novels. He's won a couple of Miles Franklin's and a bunch of other prestigious awards. But he was talking in this interview about how he still feels anxious with every book and he still doubts his ability. And that even when he's getting near the end of of finishing the book, he's still thinking, oh, this is never going to work. And for me, that interview was um, like a bit of a light bulb moment where I thought, look, it doesn't matter how successful you are, the self-doubt's always going to be there. And so in, in almost accepting that, it's easier to put it in its place. So it's like it almost takes the power out of it. Um, so anyway, that helped me. But I, I don't know. It's something that's an ongoing thing, I think, for all writers. Uh, so what are you looking forward to about Canberra's noted festival? Oh, so much. Look, I think it's so exciting, first of all, that we even have this festival, which only launched last year, but... I mean, for years we've had no major literary festival in Canberra and we're such a literary city, it's been a great frustration for me that there's been nothing here that kind of reflects that on our annual calendar. So, so I think it's fantastic that we've got this event. But in terms of individual sessions, typically my two top picks happen to overlap in terms of timing, which always happens. Um, on the Thursday night, there's the Stella Prize in Conversation, talking about the recognition of women's writing, which I really want to go to. And then there's also um, a panel called Agenda, which is looking at writers who are addressing transphobia and homophobia, which sounds like it'll be a really interesting discussion. And it's something that's not really talked about. I have, certainly haven't seen it spoken about at the festival before and in general kind of issues of diversity and publishing really interest interest me because I think publishing is such a you know white male heterosexual dominated industry like so many things and then there's also the independent publishing fair which is running all day on the Sunday and I think they've got about 70 different publishers and a really interesting mix of organisations mm-hmm. um, and I'm also going to be there doing a story time session at 11:30 with 
all the children, which will be great fun. So I'm going to be reading my kids' books and Simon at 11.30 and then Simon Mitchell's on before me at 11. So we're encouraging people to come and plonk their kids down in front of us and for an hour. So where, where will people need to plonk themselves? That's a good question. It's all the whole fair, that publishing fair is going to be at the Gorman House Arts Centre. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what corner I will be in, but I'm sure there'll be cushions and all sorts of things and you'll, you'll see us. But it's all in the Gorman House Arts Centre. We'll, we'll be the ones with the kids' books and the cushions. That's right. <laughs> Next up is a song by Jane Sage called Mischief Maker from her Worlds Apart album. She's delighted Because she knows that I can hear She is far from giving in And she's ever present There's a bubbly effervescent Sweet temptation With a bit of cold despair
You've been listening to Art Zone, Subject ACT's weekly art program on 2XX 98.3 FM as Real Beast talks to Irma Gold, one of the authors attending the Noted Festival in Canberra, which runs from the 16th to the 20th of March. So what's your approach to dealing with reviews, both good and bad? Uh, I think, like many authors, I tend to move on from the, the good reviews very quickly, but I dwell on, on the bad ones. Um, and in fact, good reviews often just sort of elicit relief that the publisher's faith in you wasn't misguided, which uh, which I suppose comes back to that self-doubt, actually. Mm. Um, look, I've been lucky so far in that I haven't had a really scathing review, and I know from my colleagues how utterly devastating those can be. Um, but I do say lucky because I think you know, reading subjective and it only takes one person who doesn't connect with your book to result in a, a terrible review. Mm. My my worst review uh, to date was in many ways amusing in a kind of frustrating way. Um, it was for my children's book, uh, Megumi and the Bear. And in that book, um, this little girl called Megumi makes friends with a bear and, and then he disappears and she's longing for him to return. And at the very end of the book, he does. Um, and when I asked the kids, they all get that the bear was hibernating because at the beginning of the book it's all snowy and then he disappears and, and we come to spring, which is when he returns. But there was this one review written by this librarian and she she wrote that she just didn't get it and, you know, where did the bear go and it was so confusing and kids would be so confused by it. And, um, and, and I thought, well, okay, that hasn't been my experience, but actually I felt like she also kind of missed the point of the book, which is that all children can relate to this feeling of loss and longing that Megumi experiences when the bear disappears. So whether it's, you know, a grandparent who they've lost or a friend who's moved away or even just a teddy bear, you know, a favourite mm-hmm. teddy bear they've lost, you know, kids feel things very deeply. And there's this particular thing that happens when I read Megumi um, and the Bear where the kids all just become so incredibly quiet and... Um, it's almost like this meditative kind of hush. It doesn't happen with my other books. It's because the kids are really connecting with Megumi's feelings, um, mm. you know, because kids do feel things so strongly. So you think all of these things when, when you read a review where you feel like the reviewer hasn't got the book, which is kind of the worst thing. Other times, if a reviewer makes, you know, a really thoughtful and engaged critique, that's a different thing altogether. Mm. Um, but I think overall the best way to deal with reviews is really to kind of allow yourself to feel all the feelings, whatever they may be, and then, you know, just do that for a day and be in a funk all day if you need to, and then, you know, after that, just try and really let it go and put it aside, because I think otherwise it can eat away at you. Um, mm. But that's easier said than done. Like, I know plenty of authors can still quote word for word, you know, terrible reviews, so it shows how hard it is to do, but I think you have to try. <laughs> I think any authors out there, if they watch Dylan Moran's skit of um, oh, yes. <laughs> of him it's reading so a rejection good. letter, <laughs> that, yes. that one's very therapeutic. Yes, Google it. Yeah, that's a great one. I love that one. Thanks very much for talking to me today, Irma. Thank you so much for having me. Next up, I'm talking to Matt Chun, a local artist exhibiting at the Nishi Gallery from the 25th of February to 13th of March. What's the theme of your latest exhibition? So it's it's work that's been created down here in Bomagui. There are some uh, some landscapes and some faces, but all the subjects uh, centre around my life here, um, down on the far south coast. 
What sort of techniques and materials have you used in your work for the forthcoming exhibition? I'm working with a variety of materials. It's all two-dimensional work. I'm using uh, coloured pencils, acrylic, gouache, charcoal, whatever I can get my hands on really because... My approach to uh, particularly the landscape is um, is very playful. Uh, I really see the, the process as exploring and allowing materials to interact. So when you say playful, do you mean, you know, that exploration of your materials or playful in how you imagine the scenery? Yeah, I think those two things probably happen at the same time and reflect each other. Mm-hmm. And who do you think the exhibition will appeal to? Yeah, I'm hoping that uh, it will appeal to everyone. <laughs> That's what an artist always hopes. In particular, uh, anybody who has any kind of relationship or interest in the landscape of the far south coast, particularly around Bermagui, where mm-hmm. I live, there will certainly be some, some landmarks and some forms uh, and, and hopefully an emotional quality that, uh, that you'll recognise. So in your exhibition, your goal with your works was to reimagine the environment of your hometown. What sort of challenges did that create for you as an artist? It's, a, it's an environment that I've had a long, uh, a long relationship with and I think the challenge for me is always to, to tease out some kinds of um, theatrical or emotional quality from the landscape. I like to sort of pull the forms apart and rearrange them into what should still be a recognisable landscape but something that, that communicates a, a different kind of uh, emotional quality. Why were you interested in a theatrical quality? As humans, we can't look at a landscape without, I guess, sighting ourselves within that landscape. So I think, yeah, the way that we arrange landscape on, on a picture plane always suggests some kind of narrative. How long did it take you to create the works that you're exhibiting? Well, most of the work has been done fairly recently. <clears throat> yeah, I, I guess it's probably four or five months' work in the most part. And you're an artist, writer and illustrator. How do the three pursuits overlap for you? Uh, look, they don't always overlap. Sometimes those those different pursuits offer some relief uh, from each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they're, they're all uh, essentially creative processes. So, yeah, I guess there's there's definitely some overlap. I guess I guess being able to look at something and and extract a story. I suppose that's present in. It's probably fair to say in any any art or creative pursuit. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed that your artistic practice has changed over time? Oh yeah, definitely. I think it would be a problem if it didn't. The fact that I'm, I think making art is about this sort of perpetual dissatisfaction with what you've made previously. <laughs> <laughs> so looking back at your early work, how different is it to your present work? The, I think the process of of being an artist, and this could be true for for a lot of artists, I think, is that you often don't particularly particularly like your early work. Mm-hmm. But then there'll always be these these kind of landmark pieces where you discovered something new or that for some reason remain relevant to you mm-hmm. um, that you sort of hang on to. But uh, but no, it's really just this kind of overarching process. Mm. So what's integral to your work as an artist? I think that it is a practice and that uh, it's something that I treat as a job. I have a studio set up, which is an open studio, and so there's um, a public interaction with that space, and it's also a public interaction that, I guess, motivates me or or even obligates me to be producing artwork all the time. Uh, You know, my my work's not always successful, and I'm I'm sure I'm my biggest critic, or one of them. Okay, thanks very much for talking to me today. My pleasure, thank you. 
You've been listening to Real Beast on ArtZone, subject ACT's weekly art program on 2XXFM 98.3 as I talk to local artist Matt Chun about his exhibition at the Nishi Gallery. Do go along and try and catch it. It runs from the 25th of February to 13th of March. Next up are Tim McCann and Craig Shannon with the program ACT at Work, bringing you news, views, attitudes and opinions from a trade union perspective. 